My name is Phil Adams. Hey, good morning. It's, good jo- it's a joy to be with you this morning and bring God's word to you. Um, it is hot in here. I'm feeling it. Can we give a round of applause for our production and our musicians this morning? Because we just have to sit in it. They were, they were here at 6.30 this morning setting everything up. I want to preach this morning from Judges chapter 3. We're in a series going through the book of Judges entitled, When God is Not King. Uh, but first this morning, I want to start off in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible there, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you've got one of the house Bibles, that's awesome. Please take it with you if you don't have a Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7. You'll hear uh, the preachers here at our church often refer to the grand, grand narrative of Scripture, that when we read our Bibles, we are not reading disconnected thoughts and concepts that are unrelated to one another. We're reading stories, truths, and songs, and poems that accumulate together into one story, into one message that God is taking sinful, broken people and delivering them from the bondage of sin and sending them out on his mission of building the church. He is taking us, delivering us, and sending us out. And what is so exciting about this book, the Bible that we have, it was grounded in history. The Bible is written within the lower context of history, human history, and it is written within the higher context of eternity so that the divine that God himself is bursting through history and is above history and is in history and is within history. And so when we raise our Bibles as a lens through which to look at the history that we're living right now, We see that the divine that God himself is bursting through and at work, and as we have been singing this morning, he is fighting for his people. And yet we are part of a society or a world here where there is a dominant belief that there is no God. And because there is no God, there are no acts of God. And because there are no acts of God, God is not fighting for you. And what that means is that your battles that your battles are yours to fight and yours alone. Your rent is yours to pay. Your credit history is yours to fix. Your job is yours to find. Your spice is yours to find. Your addiction is yours to fight. Maybe you're a father here this morning and your family woke up celebrating you but you woke up just feeling that same old weight of providing for them. Or you miss your father this morning, and that is your grief to bear. Your life is on your shoulders, so figure it out. Because we're part of a society where there is a dominant bedrock belief that there is no God, and because there is no God, there are no acts of God, and because there are no acts of God, God is not fighting for you. I want to remind you this morning to believe this book over this culture. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we can gather God as your people and we can center ourselves around you. And God, we thank you that we know you because you have revealed yourself through your word. So God, I pray that we will come to your word, God, with anticipation and excitement, God, because the God of the universe, the God of all creation spoke. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Like I said before, we're, we're going through the book of Judges at the moment where we're going to start off in the earlier book of Deuteronomy. And to give you an idea of the time period that Deuteronomy is in within that narrative of Scripture, God has promised to a man called Abraham that he would create from him a family and a big one that would grow into a nation and become a light to the world. A nation that would exist within its own land so that those people in that land could literally be a city on a hill where they would walk in the ways of God and therefore draw the world to God. And now in Deuteronomy, Abraham's family has grown into a nation of over a million people who grew to this size living in slavery in Egypt. And then God threw a ton of miracles and a man called Moses delivered them from Egypt. So now they are en route through the desert to their freedom, to the land. They're on their way to the land that they've been promised. And at this stage in the story within Deuteronomy, God is speaking to Israel and he's telling them something. He's telling them what's going to define them as his people. Now that they're free, they were going to know what's going to define them as his people. And he's giving them the law. He's giving them their laws and the boundaries and the rules that would define them, that would create their culture, the culture of Israel. A culture within a society or a business or a church is created by rules, the expectations that are put in place, they're either put in place consciously or put in place subconsciously, but as we follow these rules and as we obey them, it defines the culture of our business, it defines the culture of our church. And so when the surrounding nations would meet an Israelite, they would say, they are the people of Yahweh. In them, they would see their God. It's like if you meet somebody that works in finance, you're like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> or you meet somebody that works in Google, you're like, that, that makes sense. God is literally telling Moses, their leader within Deuteronomy, what culture Israel is going to have. And much of Israel's identity as the people of God was defined by how they related to God how they viewed God and how God viewed them. They wouldn't be simply defined by their belief in God. Because for the vast majority of history, and even today in the majority of the world, believing in God is normative. It is expected. It makes sense. It's only here in the secular West have we created a society that's different. It's taking us on a different direction. So what would have made the Israelites stand out is not their belief in God, but how they viewed God and how God viewed them. How they related to God and how God related to them was to make them stand out in the world. Their belief in God wouldn't have made them countercultural. Their belief in God would not have made them countercultural, but their relationship with God would have. Because what was unheard of in a land riddled with idolatry where the norm was appeasing gods and manipulating gods, trying to gain something from a god, from giving something to a god, grappling for a god's attention and fever through cutting themselves, killing their children. People would try and gain a positive reaction from their gods. And when all of that was happening in the land of Canaan, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 was unheard of. 
Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, we see that God reached out in relationship towards his people based on nothing other than his love for his people. The Israelites' relationship with God was initiated by God and initiated in love. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than any other people. It is not because of anything within you that God set his love on you and chose you, but you are actually the fewest of all people. But it is because God loves you and is keeping a promise he swore to you. You know what Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 is saying? It's saying that the reason that God set his love on Israel, Israel was because he set his love on Israel. The Israelites' relationship with God was initiated by God, initiated in love, and initiated because he loved them. If you ask me why I love my kids, I'd give you the same answer. I love them because I love them. What I want you to see this morning, after all of that, is that God initiated his relationship with his people based on nothing other than an unchanging love for them. And that is the bottom line. That is the bedrock belief on which everything else was built from. God's love for his people is the bedrock on top of which all of Israel's laws were built. The culture of Israel was to be fused with a countercultural truth that the God of creation loved them and was fighting for them. No other society in Canaan had that. Nobody else had that kind of God. No wonder the nations would have been drawn to God, to a people whose behavior was a response to a God who would unchangingly love them and fight for them. And then within this law, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we have one of the most interesting parts of Israel's culture-creating law. In Deuteronomy 20, we read how Israel were to conduct themselves during war. And the first four verses are real, real nice. You'll, you'll like, you're going to like them. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, reads, reads like this. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and any army larger than you, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Yes. That's one of those verses that we're going to put in a coffee mug. God's going with you. Listen to verses 2 and 4, because you're going to like these ones too. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Yes, two coffee mugs. God's going to come with us and he is going to give us the victory. Yes, perfect. Now from verse 5 onwards, it starts to get kind of weird. Verse 5, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. 
So the soldiers are lined up here. They are ready to go out into, into battle, and they, they, they know who the enemy is, and they see the enemy, and then the priest comes forward and says, if anybody just bought a house, if anyone just got a new, new place and you haven't thrown that welcoming party yet, you can go home. That's, that's fine. We, we can do without you. Okay. Okay. A few people are leaving. That's okay. Look at verse 6. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoys its fruit. This is getting weird because you're saying that if somebody has a vineyard and they haven't got to have a glass of wine from their vineyard yet, even though we're standing here and we're about to go to war and we have all of these soldiers and we're ready to fight for our freedom, you're saying they can go home to enjoy a glass of wine? Okay. Some more people are packing up their things. Verse 7. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. So anyone that's got a girlfriend, anybody that's going to get married to a fiancé, they can go to, okay, every, lot, people are packing up their things. Verse 8. And the officers shall speak further to people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back. You've let everybody else go. That's me now. I'm the, faint, the fearful and the faint-hearted, so I'm going to go home. <laughs> let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed to the head of the people. What I'm reading here is, is pretty much that if, you've, if you're in Israel and you're a soldier, if you have any excuse for not going to fight for the army of Israel, you cannot fight. What is, and what is crazy about this is that we aren't reading a story. We're not reading like a one-off event where we're reading these words. We're reading the law of Israel. That's how God wanted Israel to conduct themselves during war always. Israel's military policy was to go to war, humanly speaking, weaker than they could have. Why? That's reckless. It, it defies logic. Because, because the bedrock, the foundation on which the law of Israel was built was that God had set his love on them, and so their laws reflected that God was fighting for them. And if God is fighting for them, humanly speaking, they can relax. The law of Israel was infused with the truth that the God of creation loved them and was fighting for them. You can extend your honeymoon. <laughs> you can enjoy a glass of wine in your vineyard, even when you're at war. Because you're God's people and he's going to bring the victory. You can relax in your weakness. You can find joy in your weakness when God is fighting for you. So as Israel went to war, they were to demonstrate that they had a trust in God's love and a trusted a God that was fighting for them by letting soldiers go home. Can you imagine God, we, lo we love the first bit. We got the mugs. We love the first bit. 
Thank, thank you that you promise to be with us and never leave us and never forsake us. Thank you that you bring the victory. Thank you, honestly, thank you. But please don't ask me to live in such a way that I believe it. Don't ask me to send soldiers home. Don't make me put all my eggs in your basket. I trust you. I promise. Believe me. And is this not all about my heart anyway, not about my works? In my heart, God, I trust you. But to prove I trust you with my actions, well, God, that would just be reckless. This whole passage just feels wrong. It just doesn't feel wise. It doesn't feel prudent. You don't leave soldiers at home sipping wine with their wives. The Canaanites would never have held back their soldiers. Never. Do you remember Goliath? They got their biggest one. They are going to do everything in their power to win whatever it takes. Let's go to Judges chapter 3. I know it's hot in here, but that was just my introduction. (laughs) Judges chapter 3, and where you're going as you turn. A generation has passed since Deuteronomy, since Israel received God's law, and they find themselves in the land that they were promised. But when they got there, they were taken captive by another nation, by a king called Moab. Because when they had got there, They did not clear out the land. Jimmy talked about this last week. They didn't clear out the land of the Canaanites, the enemies of God, and they decided to live with them and live alongside them and to marry them, which caused them not just to live alongside the Canaanites, but become like them. And so as the cycle of judges we're going through at the moment, God's people disobeyed God and he punished them by getting them being, letting them be taken captive. Then as is the cycle of judges, after a certain period of time, God sent a deliverer to set them free. And in Judges chapter 3, we read about one of these times where they were taken captive and then we read about how they were delivered. Let's read Judges chapter 3 verses 12 to 14. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Pams, which is Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So this is the first stage in the cycle of the judges. God's people do evil, then God's people are taken captive, and in this case, they're taken captive by the Moabites and King Eglon. Read verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So now in this cycle of the judges, after 18 years, The people in Israel, they cry out to God, not in repentance because they're sorry. They cry out because they want help. And in this cycle, God raises up Ehud, a Benjamite, a left-handed man, which is kind of weird because the Benjamites, it means that they're the son of the right hand, and the author wants to tell us that he has a left hand, and that's okay. We're going to keep going. Ehud has been raised up. (laughs) 
The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So what's happening is, periodically, Israel had to go to this king of Eglon and had to pay tribute to him. They had to go to him and acknowledge by their actions that they were under his submission. And they would come, and Ehud, Ehud led the way, and they gave them these tributes and gifts. And Ehud was at the front. Look at verse 16. This is when it gets interesting. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So what this is telling us is, is that Ehud is getting himself prepared. He's going to be smart. He's going to be strategic. So he makes for himself this small sword that's got blades on both sides, and he hides it in his clothes, and it's smart because he's, he hides it in his right hand, and Ehud's not going to go that he's, got a la- he's using his left hand, so he's going to reach from the opposite side, so it's less chance that this is going to be found out and detected. He's being smart. Let's read verses 17 to 18. What happens next? And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, okay? And when... <laughs> And when Ehud was finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So Ehud comes and he submits and he pays the tribute from Israel and they all leave again. We also get this helpful visual of Eglon now that he's a very fat man. Let's look at verse 19 and 20. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you, and he arose, Ehud arose from his seat. So Ehud left with all of the other Israelites, but then he turned back at a point when he reached idols at Gilgal, and he went back to the king, and he said to the king, I have a message for you. He's luring the king in. He's deceptively trying to trick the king. So the king gets everyone out of the room. Silence, I want to hear this message. And again, Ehud, he steps up the deception and says, I have a message from God for you. So Fat Eglon arises from his seat. Let's look at verse 21, 22. Hold on to your seats. And Ehud reached out with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Wow. Ehud stabbed Eglon. The sword got stuck in his fat so that when Ehud couldn't pull the sword out, Eglon literally defecates where he is standing and then slumps into his own waist. Did you see that coming? Wow! This is not just success. This is humiliation of the enemy. Look at verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not come out the, door, out the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and they lay, their Lord lay there dead on the floor. 
Ehud sneaks out, locks the door, and while he escapes, the servants are waiting, thinking that the smell means that the king wants some privacy. Look at verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time 10,000 Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Ahad runs back to Israel, tells them what's happened, tells them God's delivered them, let's go, let's finish the job. And so they go, they defeat the Moabites, Israel gets its freedom, and Ehud is their leader. Now maybe it's just me, but I think that story's awesome. Ehud is smart, Ehud is prepared, he is strategic, he is sneaky, he humiliates the enemy, he's a hero. And he acts just like a Canaanite. You see, when you read the Hebrew, there are all of these little suggestions that are like red flags with Ehud. It's kind of like cross-cultural training because different cultures are direct and indirect to varying degrees. And the passage is quite indirect in what it is saying. But in the ancient world and much of the world today, the left hand is still a symbol of uncleanliness. When Ehud makes the sword, the author makes the point of saying twice, he made it for himself, he made it for himself. And twice the author reminds us of the idols in Gilgal, because Gilgal was the first place the Israelites went to when they came into the land of Canaan. Now Israel have filled it with idols, and the idols are upright before Ehud kills Eglon, and they are up afterwards. And when Eglon's waist goes out from him, it's the exact same word in the next phrase that refers to Ehud coming out from the palace. What's going on? Why are all of these negative hints about Ehud? Surely he's a hero. He defeated the evil king. He was smart. He was savvy. Okay, he was manipulative and he lied. He doesn't seem like he's the most spiritual person, but we need people like that. You know, people that just get the job done to the glory of God. If I was in Ahud's position and that evil king was oppressing me and that was my fight on my shoulders, I would do the same thing and I would boast in it. I would protect my family. I would fight for my people. I'd do whatever it takes to make my life easier and my family's life easier and my country's life easier because Eglon is in the wrong and I would do whatever it takes. problem is that God doesn't want a people who will do whatever it takes. He wants a people that will obey him and then trust him. I didn't want to preach this message this morning. I studied this passage this week and I studied this passage and I wanted Ehud desperately to be good. 
I wanted to be him to be a hero that we should celebrate because I wanted to be like him. Ehud is smart. He's prepared. He has a strategy. He's two steps ahead in life. And he wins. He wins. And are winners not heroes? One of the reasons we need to hear this, and I need to hear this, this morning is because just as the book of Judges is about the canonization of Israel, I fear that we're going through the Americanization of the church. I need to hear this. Because I fear that as we go through the book of Judges and we read about the canonization of Israel, I fear that we're going through the Americanization of the church. Why did God place it within the law of Israel that when they go to war, their soldiers could go home? Because the bedrock of Israel's culture and their identity was that they had a God who loved them and who had promised to never stop loving them. No other nation had that. That was what defined them. That God was fighting for them. And it was out of that truth that God's law came to ensure that Israel would behave in such a way that revealed what made them unique. The laws were shaped in such a way that they revealed God's love so that their behavior would display their belief and trust in a God who chose them and loved them and will fight for them. Israel's law pointed to their king. God chose Israel and gave them their laws so that through them he could reveal himself, that he was their God, that he was their king. So when they went to war, God didn't just want to give Israel a victory. He wanted the world to see that he gave them the victory so that the world would know that there is a God who loves his people and fights for them. A God who acts for his people, not because they've earned it or manipulated him, but because he loves them and he loves them because he loves them and he wants the world to come and experience that love. Ahad won the battle, but God's love was not revealed. God's grace was not revealed. God's power was not revealed. God was not revealed. Human strategy was revealed. Human ability was revealed. Human strength was revealed. Ahud's smart. I want to be like him. I want to follow him. But God was not revealed. There's a pattern all through Scripture of God using the weak because the proud, like Ahud, have the habit of stealing the moments God wants to use to reveal himself to us. I made a statement earlier that the book of Judges is about the canonization of Israel, and I fear that we're going through the Americanization of the church. What I mean by that is that we live in a particular time in history within a particular society that says there is no God. There's only one level of reality. God has never burst through history. He's not in it. He's not above it. He's not working through it. He never was. We are all that there is. There is no one fighting for us. That has been 
overcome a bedrock belief of our culture. And I don't say that because I've done a survey that I've found out the majority of people say that there is no God. I don't know. I say that because this is how the majority of people behave. And our behavior communicates what we believe. Behaviors that say, I must be my own hero. I must be smarter. I must be faster and better than everyone else. I must do whatever it takes. I have to live with the anxiety on my shoulders and to be always trying to stay two steps ahead because there's no one else who's fighting for me. I must cheat on my taxes because no one else is going to provide for me and my family. I must crush anybody that gets in the way of my success because no one else is going to help me. I have to be manipulative. That's what works. I have to be aggressive or I won't survive. I have to lie because everyone else is. I know it's wrong, but there's no one else fighting for me. I need to spend more time planning and strategizing than praying because planning and strategizing is all that there really is. Church, that is not what we believe. We got to snap out of it. This is Canaanite. This is the Americanization of the church. That is a secular church. A church that believes that God is not fighting for them. That is not what we believe. That is not how we should behave. As the church, the bedrock of who we are, of our identity, is no longer Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, where God promises his love for us. The bedrock, the foundation of our identity as the church is Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where God proves his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. The bedrock, the foundation of our identity is that is not that nobody is fighting for us, but that God fought for us and won, and he is still fighting for us to finish the job because we are his treasured possession. That is what we believe. What God promised, he proved. God has promised he loved us with his words and then he proved it with his actions. What more proof do we need that we are his? Do you see how beautiful that is? In the Old Testament, God said, I have set my love on you. Then in the New Testament, God came in the flesh and said, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. God promised that he loved us, and then he proved it with his actions. And now he asks us to do the same. He set the model for us to follow. God says, if you believe that I love you, if you believe that I love you, prove it by trusting me with your obedience. Prove you trust me, not by what you say, but by what you do and you don't do. And by what you do and you don't do, the world will see your confidence in a God who loves his people. A God who acts for his people, not because they have earned it or he's manipulated them, or because he loves them, but because he loves them, and he loves us because he loves us. And he wants the world to come and experience that love. Will we manipulate 
and we strategize endlessly through life, whether it works or whether it doesn't. We rob God of the chance to reveal to us and to those around us that God provides for his people. When we manipulate and we strategize endlessly through life, whether it works or whether it doesn't, we rob God of the chance to reveal to us and through us that God provides for his people. I'm going to close with this. Chicago doesn't need a church that's smarter than they are. It doesn't need a church with a better growth strategy than McDonald's. Chicago doesn't need preachers that can do TED Talks and worship bands that can fill soldiers' feel they've got TED Talks and Coldplay. What they do need is a church that believes and then behaves like they are. A church that believes and behaves that they, like they are unconditionally loved by God. It's my suggestion that what this looks like a church is a church that is confident amidst its weaknesses. Hopeful in weakness. Hopeful facing an unknown future. Just because God loves you. Patient in weakness. Patient in the job search. Because God's fighting for you. Joyful in weakness. Encouraged in weakness. America has strength, but what they do not have is the peace of God in weakness. The question is, do we? Do we, as the church, have the peace of God in weakness? Because if we do, we'll be able to draw them with that. Let me pray. God, I pray that you will bless your word this morning. God, you will keep it on my heart. You'll keep it on our hearts, God, and we'll be a people changed by your words. In your precious name.